Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. All right, tonight we get to wrap up the whole 1 Corinthians series. We've been going for 16 weeks in a row, 1 Corinthians. How many of you guys read ahead? Anybody read ahead? All right, a couple people read ahead, 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, It's been an amazing time. We've learned a lot about things in the scriptures, but more importantly, I believe a lot of people have grown and been changed by that. And so let's continue with that spirit tonight and that attitude tonight. I want to ask you a question, though, as we get started. If you had to pick something to invest in, I'm not talking about financially, I'm just talking about in your life, something to put your time and energy in that you thought, if I do this, this is going to create the best future self that I could possibly have. What might that be? What would be a good investment of your time, energy, and all that sort of thing? There was a recent survey that was done of millennials, the next generation that really is is emerging, and uh, they asked them some questions about what were the most important things to them. Of that group, over 80% said that one of the most important life goals that they had is to get rich. One of the eight, over 80% to get rich. Uh, 50% of that same group said that one of the most important goals that they have in life is to become famous. And so those are some big goals that millennials have. Now, you may be a millennial here tonight, and that's not your goal. That's fine. But that was the majority of those that were polled. Now, I wonder if we could look out into the future, and what if we could play it out clear to the end of their life, and we were able to see whether that was a good investment, whether that was a good pursuit or not. How would we look back upon their life, and how would we be able to judge those things to see if it really was worth it or not? Well, uh, I was watching a TED Talk this week of all, sor- of all things, and there was an interesting study that I saw, an interesting thing, and it's, uh, they basically did just that. They didn't go into the future, but they did look at people's lives, and they began to reverse engineer them to see what was important and what made the difference between those who had fulfilling lives and those who did not, and those who lived a long time and those who did not. It's called the the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and they've been going since 1938. Starting in 1938, they selected 724 adult men who are one group, was sophomores at Harvard University. And they went on to go into the war, uh, World War II, and to go on, and they began to study these 724 men. Well, the other group was from the poorest neighborhoods in Boston. And they specifically found the poorest and the most, uh, you know, troubled areas and so much so that some, a lot of them didn't even have hot or cold water really in, in where they were living. They were of the poorest neighborhoods, the troubled neighborhoods, and they specifically selected them because they were in the poorest neighborhoods to see how these two different groups would do. Now, 724 men starting in 1938. Amazingly, this study, the last I heard, was still continuing. And most of the time, these types of studies die off because they run out of funding or because as the directors die off, then then other people don't pick it up. Well, this one has survived for decades now. And what they did is they started off with them and they went and they did interviews with them. They interviewed them about their family life their goals, their work situation. They interviewed their parents. They did medical records. And every single year since then, they have gone with these surveys and these intense studies to try to get a makeup of who, who these 724 people are. And so that's, they begin to do this. Now, of these 724, 
uh, last I heard, about 60 of them were still alive. And they were still going in and regularly keeping up with these people. And so here's what happened. Over the years, some of them took on different walks of life. Some of them became bricklayers. Some of them became lawyers. Some of them became doctors. One of them became a president of the United States. They just went through this whole thing. Some of them uh, developed alcoholism. Some of them uh, schizophrenia. Some of them started off at the top of the social ladder and ended up working their way to the bottom. And yet others started at the bottom and worked their way up to the top. And so it was an amazing study. Some of them lived a long, full life and a happy life, enjoyable life, and some of them didn't. And so they began to wonder, they began to wonder, what if of those who are still alive in their 80s and 90s, what if we could go back into when they were 50 in our charts to be able to predict of these who lived a long, full, happy life, what was the common denominator between those who lived a full, long, happy life and those who didn't? And so fortunately, they had the research to be able to do it. So they pull up all their files and they begin to comb through what made the difference of those who lived and those who didn't, those who were healthy, those who were not, those who were happy and those who were sad, those who were depressed, whatever. And so they didn't. And what they found was pretty amazing. What they found is that it didn't matter. There, it wasn't the common thread about what their work goals were. It wasn't the common thread of what their career was. It wasn't the common thread of whether they started off in Harvard or the slums of Boston. It wasn't the common thread of, of whether they had high goals, low goals, high habits, low habits. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't even their cholesterol level that predicted whether they would live a long, full life. What they found was that it was actually the depth of their relationships that was the one common thread. Those that said in their 50s that they had deep relationships with other people. And it wasn't that there was a lack of conflict because they, plenty of them had conflict. It was that even in the midst of a conflict, it wasn't that they were committed relationships or not committed relationships because even in committed relationships, people can feel lonely. How many of you guys know that's true? And, and it wasn't about whether they were committed or not. or what. It was simply about that at the end of the day, they felt through all of the conflict, through all of the issues, that they had a deep connection with other people. One that they could count on in the other person in good times and bad, in high conflict or not. It turns out that what the key factor to living a long, full life is, if you were to invest in one thing, according to this study, that was going to be the predictor of living a long, full, healthy, healthy life, it would be to invest in deep, deep relationships. That's surprising, isn't it? That it goes beyond just medical. It goes beyond all of these other factors. And so it turns out that those who did have deep relationships, actually, even though they experienced pain like the other people, that they rated their pain less because they had deep relationships. They, in fact, found out that their brain function was better and their memory loss was less than those who had more shallow, disconnected relationships. This is pretty amazing, actually. I, I think it's pretty amazing. So it turns out that it's all a matter of having a right perspective towards deep relationships. Having a right perspective. It, who cares if you have conflict? Who cares if whatever? That you have a right perspective about relationships. That makes the difference in the long term. Now, here's the spiritual principle that we all need to catch tonight. And here's what it is that you've got to get, get tonight if you want to get the message. And it's this. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find. Whatever you're looking for, you're going to find. If you're looking for good, you'll find it. If you're looking for bad, you'll find it. If you're looking for good in a marriage, you'll find it. If you're looking for bad in your marriage, 
you'll find it. If you're looking for good in friendships, you'll find it. If you're looking for bad in friendships, you'll find it. If you're looking for good in your job, you'll find it. If you're looking for bad in your job, you'll find it. If you're looking for good in a church, you'll find it. If you look for bad in a church, you'll find it. Okay, it surprises me that people would find bad, but they do. You know, I just, being a pastor, they do. That's a spiritual principle, guys, that if whatever you're looking for, you will find. And so as we get into 1 Corinthians 16 and we wrap all this up, if you read ahead, it looks like kind of a list. You guys ever watch a movie and you get, it's a really good movie, right? And you get to the end and then all the credits start to roll and it's just like, this is just a bunch of names, a bunch of people. I don't really care to even see whose names these are. And you're kind of watching the credits scroll, scroll across there. And then all of a sudden there's a surprise clip at the end, right? How many of you guys have ever seen that? And it's like, I'm so glad that I stuck around through all these names because there's a surprise clip that actually makes it worth my while to stay. That's what chapter 16 is. It's a big list of names. And all of a sudden in the list of names, there's something surprising that it's worth sticking around for. And so that's what I want to look at tonight is this surprise clip that's worth sticking around for. And it, and it turns out as we look at this, this chapter, what this chapter could be, you could say this chapter is all about relationships. Paul lists all these names, but here's the trick about what Paul's doing. I believe that he's presenting two different ways that we could look at these different relationships and we see hints of it. And so that's what I want to look at real quick tonight before we get into the rest of the message. So first Corinthians chapter 16, verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside, put something aside, store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what Paul's doing here, you see it in other threads of scripture. Evidently, there were some poor believers in Jerusalem. They had come into poverty because of persecution. They had given away all their stuff to help other people, and they had found themselves in poverty. And because of this, Paul is going around to all the different churches, and he's trying to collect an offering to try to help these people, these poor people in, back in Jerusalem. They're Jews back in Jerusalem, and he's trying to help them. Now, one way you could look at this is like, man, what, they gave away all their stuff. They got, I mean, they're, let them pull up themselves up by the bootstraps and come on, get on with it. Why do I have to give my money to go help these poor people who should have known better to go through a Dave Ramsey financial peace class, get your act together, you know, get your stuff together. And, and you know, Paul's saying, no, let's reach out to these people. Now, there's another thing going on here. The church in Corinth, they were non-Jews. The church in Jerusalem were made up mainly of Jews. Now, Whenever the gospel was first given, it was to a Jewish audience. And in fact, in the book of Acts, we finally see those non-Jews grafted in. And so Paul is looking at this as very strategic to try to bring unity between Jews and non-Jews. There's two ways we could look at this. One, well, I don't want to help those people. Paul didn't look at it that way. He said, I want to bring unity to all of these people. Two different perspectives. Verse 10, if you skip down to verse 10, we see this. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Now, we know Timothy is kind of Paul's sidekick. You know, if, there was, if Paul was a superhero, Timothy would be the sidekick. And uh, it says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, there's several times when he has to be encouraged to stir things up. He wasn't necessarily as bold or as confident as Paul was. And so evidently, according to this scripture, they had a tendency to despise him, to say, come on, Timothy. I mean, get, you know, 
get some strength to you or whatever. And Paul says, you got two options. You can despise him or you can help him. Despise him or help him. Again, two different ways we could choose to see Timothy. Verse 12, next scripture. Now concerning our brother Apollos, if you remember clear back to the first of this chapter, of this book, we see that they were all fighting over, well, I'm team Paul, I'm team Apollos. Apollos is my pastor, I like that dude. Paul's my pastor, he's more theological and he's got his stuff down. And here we got Apollos again, and and this one, some of their favorite. It says, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, they could choose two different ways to view Apollos. One, man, I thought Apollos was our guy. I mean, I thought he loved us. And here Paul's trying to talk him into coming, and he's saying, eh, not the time. I, I, don't, really, I don't know if I'm going to come or not. And that's how maybe some of them receive that. Others could receive it this way. Man, Apollos is so in, he's so in sync that he's being discerning of when is the right time for me to be led by the Spirit to come. We have two different options to, on how to view that. Verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And then he gives them instructions. You see, these guys were from their church, and they had gone to Paul and asked questions. Evidently, there was a tendency for them to just take them as familiar, but Paul gives them another option. He says, give them recognition. They could dismiss or they could recognize. All of these are subtle little opportunities. Now, every single one of us right now, I showed you all of that to say this. Every single one of us right now in every one of our relationships have two opportunities on how we are going to see those. In your marriage right now, you have an opportunity. There, there's, there's two different narratives going on. One is a narrative that's not so nice, and one of them is a narrative of believing the best. And we have these in our marriages. We have these in our friendships. We have these with our coworkers. We have these with our jobs. We have these with our purpose. We have these with our church. We have two different narratives. And it goes back to the spiritual principle. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find. I woke up right out of the dead sleep this morning. First thing, wake up out of bed, and I think this scripture, Holy Spirit drops this in me. You may think I'm crazy. This stuff kind of happens, you know. So I wake up, Matthew 6.23. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have the whole Bible memorized just yet. I'm work, I've got a few verses to go. I didn't quite, I thought I had the ballpark of what that was, but I didn't quite know what, what that exactly was. And so I was rushing around getting ready and I was driving in. I didn't have time to look it up just yet. And so I thought I'm going to ask Siri on my way in. So I'm driving, I'm asking Siri. All right, what is Matthew 6, 23? And Siri pops back up. Uh, here's what I found on the web for you, Matthew 623. And I'm like, I got to get Siri saved. Doesn't even know how to read the Bible. <laughs> pops up the scripture. Here's what the scripture said. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I thought, whoa, God's speaking to me even in my sleep about this message about how important it is for what we see. And that's really the question right now I have for you tonight. What do you see? When you look at your marriage right now, what do you see? 
When you look at your friendships right now, what do you see? When you look at your calling right now, your, your purpose, your job, your career, your relationships, your kids, what do you see? It's important what you see. It's important what you're focusing on. Years ago, when my kids were younger, we had something that we called around the Phillips house, we called it Frontier Night. Now, Frontier Night at the Phillips house means this. You shut off all electronics altogether, you shut off all lighting, and you go back to what it was in the 1800s in the frontier days, and you live like that for the evening. Now we keep the stove on because we like to eat, and, but no, we get out candles, man. I mean, we're living, we start the fire. We, I mean, we're living like back in the frontier days, and it's a blast, you know? But that's when the kids were little, and we hadn't done that for a long time. Now I've got teenagers, and they, you know, they're, they're too cool for that. And so, but I had my daughters actually on the front row. She came up, and she said, uh, Dad, we haven't done frontier night for a long time long time. What if we did that tonight? And I'm like, all right, we're doing frontier night tonight. So we got out all the candles and we're like, it's still, it's about 430 in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, we're lighting the candles, man. We're doing this thing and we're frontier night and, and we're getting to make this thing happen. And so, you know, some of the kids were more excited about it than others, but, but we, we started frontier night. And so it was still about dusk and, and we did, you know, we had the candles lit inside. We had the thing going on. We're getting ready to ha- play board games or whatever. And we all decided to go out on the deck and just kind of hang out on the deck as the evening, the sun was setting and everything. And so we're sitting there talking and I just happened to glance back inside. And as I glance back inside, my table is on fire. <clears throat> because what had happened is I, I went to a garage sale. How many of you guys love to go to garage sales? Anybody? How many of you guys went to a garage sale this week? All right. I, was, I went to a garage sale. How many of you guys find good deals at a garage sale? Here, I mean, when I go to garage sales, here's what I do. I believe you have to be led by the Spirit of God when you're garage sailing. I mean, I'm driving. I'm praying in the Spirit. Like, Lord, is this a good garage sale? And I'm driving. I'm just being, using a gift of discernment. I mean, I'm serious. I'm using a gift of discernment. Is there a good treasure for me? Because every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father above. And I do not want to stop and waste my time. I only have a limited amount of time. Pastor Aaron talked about that last week. I'm not going to waste it at a bad garage sale. I'm going to go to the good ones and use my discernment. And we go to garage sales. And what I love about garage sales is garage sales are simply an opportunity for you to find and discover things to buy that you didn't know you needed. Right? And so I'm looking and I evidently, I didn't know we needed a lot of stuff. And so now what we need that I didn't know we needed beforehand is a storage unit for all the stuff that I didn't know we needed that now we have. And One of these things is this little candle holder that I bought at this garage sale because I have these candles that I couldn't find the right fit for. Well, you know, I put these candles in. They were kind of leaning over just a little bit. And so in order for wax not to drop on our table, we put down this paper, you know, this, 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 uh, you know, cloth thing there, that paper towel thing to kind of catch the wax. And that wasn't doing the whole job. So I took some of those things, you know, when you're singing Silent Night at Christmas Eve and they protect your hand, we put those on the candles. There's four little candles. Well, evidently what had happened while we're enjoying out on the deck, the candle burns down, lights that on fire. Then that all drops onto the paper towel. I had a, a, a display of dried pine cones that then caught on fire on the table. The fire's roaring on my table. Our table now has a birthmark on it from being in flames. And fortunately, we got it out, and, and, and that, was, that was the end of the frontier night. Um, but it's important what you're looking at, because if you're not looking at the right things, it can be pretty dangerous. The same is true in life, though. 
If we aren't focused on the right thing, there's a lot of dangerous stuff that can end up happening. And this idea of whatever you're looking for, you'll find, and what do you see, is actually a spiritual principle. It's actually a faith thing. Because here's what happens. It goes all the way back. I think of Joshua. You remember Joshua? When God comes and and he's getting ready to cross over the Jordan, getting ready to go to the promised land, God asks him a question. What do you see? Well, in the natural, Joshua could say, you know what? I see a big old river. You know, I see a a land that's fortified with, uh, I see cities with walls around them. I see giants. But Joshua didn't answer that way. He answered with the the answer of faith because he was seeing through the eye of faith. I think about Elijah. You know, Elijah, he's a prophet. He gets surrounded by all these armies and Elijah's servant runs in and says, Elijah, all of them that are against us, it's, it's too much. And Elijah says, no, you just can't see. And in the, in the spirit, there were angels surrounding them. And Elijah says, there's more of us than there are of them. And he asked God to open up the eyes of the servant. And all of a sudden, he could see. Here's what I believe God's asking you tonight. What do you see? And you can answer that a couple different ways. You can answer that by what you see in the natural. Or you can answer that through the eye of faith. John Maxwell says this. He says, everything worthwhile in life is uphill. Can you think about everything worthwhile in your life? It's probably been uphill, hasn't it? Everything worthwhile in life is uphill. A good marriage, you know, doesn't just happen. You got to work. It's, it's uphill. Uh, you know, good friendships, you know, uh, your purpose, your career, all those things worthwhile are uphill. The problem is, We have uphill dreams, but we've got downhill thinking and downhill habits. It's awfully hard to go uphill backwards, isn't it? When you you got uphill dreams, but you got downhill thinking and downhill habits, when you try to walk uphill, what happens? Frustration, and you become extremely ineffective. Extremely ineffective. Now, none of us wants to become ineffective. Paul here in this chapter, we haven't read it yet, but what he says here is this. I I, want to come visit you guys, but there has been a great wide open door of effective work for the gospel open to me. A great open door, an open door from God. How many of you guys want to have an open door from God of effective work? Not just work, but effective work. You know, that, that word effective means this. It means working, functioning as intended or purposed. How many of you guys remember a time in your life where you just kind of had this epiphany that maybe you weren't so good, it wasn't working out, right? You have one of those moments. I was thinking of, uh, reminded of Tiger Woods years ago in 2008 or something. He was, I'm not a golfer, but in, in 2008, he was playing in the U.S. Open against his doctor's advice because he had a bad knee and they didn't want him to do that. And it turns out that he actually also had a fractured leg, played the whole thing, won the tournament. Amazing. He's good, right? Or was good, right? And then I was thinking about my last game of golf. One of the, one of the holes was 19 strokes. Now, if you don't know anything about golf, it's, it's, not the, it's not the higher the score wins if you didn't know that. And I think at some point you're supposed to stop counting 
And it was also the same round of golf that I somehow hit my friend Luke at like a thousand miles an hour with a golf ball and knocked him to the ground. Fortunately, he survived. But I realized I'm not that good at golf. You ever have a friend who you think, they think they're really good at singing and everyone has told them they're not and their mama keeps telling them they're good and they think they're good, but it's not effective. And we all experience those things in life, right? Where we're, it's not effective anymore. How many of you guys, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you're, you're walking through that time right now where you feel like life is just not functioning as intended or purposed. And I would long, I just would love to have like Paul had that wide open door of effective work for the gospel. I would love to have this wide open. How many of you guys would love to have a wide open door of effective? You just say, God, open the door. Give me an open door. How many of you guys like to have an open door from God? We all would like to have an open door from God where we could have effective work. Why aren't we walking in effectiveness through our open door from God? Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because one of our downhill habits and thinking actually has to do with how we define God's open doors. You see, here's what I've heard a lot of Christians say. God, I'm praying for an open door. I've got these two decisions. I've got this problem maybe. God, I just want you to open the door and show me your open door. And what we mean by that is this. We define open doors basically by saying, oh, look, here's an open door. God has opened this wide open and he's cleared the path. This has to be an open door from God. The path has been cleared. And basically what happens when we pray for open doors is we, it turns into the path of least resistance. Well, this must be an open door from God. The way has been cleared. Do you realize that's just fatalistic? That's just saying, how many of you guys have ever prayed this prayer? God, if it's your will for me to get this job, let it happen. And if it's not your will, that must mean that it was not your ha- will because it did not happen. What kind of prayer is that? What? That's, I don't get that prayer. You know, it's like basically whatever happens must have been right. What's the point of praying? And that's kind of how we work with open doors. God, show me. I just need an open door in this area. I need an open door in my finances. I need an open door in my job. I need an open door in a relationship. It's cleared. It's an open door from God. The problem is we didn't finish reading the rest of the scripture. I'm just going to skip to verse 9. Paul says, For a wide open door for effective work has opened to me. And he put a period right there because the sentence was done. How many of you guys would love for the sentence to be done? Please, Lord, stop the sentence. But that's not what happened. There's not a, there's not a period there. There's a comma. It says, And there's many adversaries. You see, Paul's open doors were not clear paths. Paul's open doors were not our open doors, right? I mean, our open doors are clear paths. Paul's open door, he says, I see an open door and the path is not clear. It's got a lot of opposition in this path, but it's an open door from God. You see, the problem with our prayer for an open door is basically our prayer is not the same thing as what God's open doors actually are. They're not the same thing. Again, it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? I mean, it's a matter of how we see open doors. So here's what I want you to catch tonight. Many times there is great, where there is great opportunity, there's also great opposition. 
Many times where there's great opportunity in our life, there's great opposition. And here's another principle that I want you to get. God's plan for your life is not about where can I find the least opposition. God's plan for my life is where can I find the most opportunity. See, your open door is not about the least opposition. It's about the most opportunity. Somebody needs to get a hold of this tonight because you've been looking at it all upside down. And here's the question. Do you judge open doors by the least amount of opposition or by the most amount of opportunity? Because that's how Paul judged an open door. And the question I have for you tonight is what do you see? When you see opposition, do you run the other way and say, that's not God? Because that's not a clear path and open door. Or do you look and say, God, what, what's the opportunity here? Because that's what an open door is like. If you're just looking for the least opportunity or the least opposition in your relationships, then you, you, guess what? It's all a matter of what you see. I believe this is why many marriages end up in divorce is because somebody along the way says, in my relationship, in my marriage, what I really want is the least opposition. And since I've got a lot of opposition in this current relationship, I'm going to find a new relationship that has less opposition in it. And so what we do is we move from a high opposition situation and we move into a newer surface level relationship with people. Where how many of you guys know at the first part of any type of relationship, all it is is butterflies and rainbows, right? I mean, everything's just peachy and all that stuff. And so it doesn't feel like there's any opposition. It just feels like all there is is opportunity. The way has been cleared. And so people end up living surface friendships, surface life, surface purpose, because what we really desire down deep and how we've wrongly defined open doors from God is by the least opposition. But do you realize the most opportunity may be sitting right next to you right now? And it also might be the most opposition currently. It might be the most opposition. might be the most opportunity and the most opposition at the same time. And it all depends on how we're looking at it. And it's a make or break question for you tonight. Can you see the opportunity in your current opposition? Can you see it? Jesus always sees the opportunity in the opposition. He always has. He always will. I want to look at a famous passage of Scripture that you know, many of you guys know, some of you may not. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, Jesus, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked some disciples, he asked his disciples, he said, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or some of the prophets. And so they were just kind of saying what people said about Jesus, trying to answer his question. And Jesus goes a little further and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Because what is really important here is not what other people think Jesus is or other people say. Really what's important tonight is who is Jesus to you? Not that you get to make him up and make your own version of him, but how much revelation do you have of who Jesus really is? It doesn't matter what your friends think or your spouse thinks or your parents think. What really matters is who is Jesus to you? And that's what he's getting down to. And Simon Peter replied, and normally he's the guy who speaks up and makes it all a mess, right? But he gets it right here tonight. He says this, he says, uh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then he begins to say this sentence that many of you guys have heard. 
It says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How many of you guys have heard that scripture before? Anybody? All right. There's, I think there's three different ways we can interpret that scripture. Number one, we could look at it this way. Jesus was looking directly at Peter and saying, you know what, Peter, I'm going to build the church on you. And you are the starting point of the church. And there are some people who think that that's the way it happened, that Jesus was looking at Peter and said, all right, it's all about Peter. And on the, the rock of Peter, I'm going to build the church. That's one way. A second way you could look at this is that Jesus was saying this. On the rock of this revelation that you have of who I am, I'm going to build the church on the rock of the revelation that, that you saw who I really am. And I'll build the church on that. And that, that's not a bad way to look at that. But before I tell you the third one, I want to just lay the groundwork that Jesus is building his church. Aren't you guys thankful that Jesus is building his church? You look all over the globe right now, Jesus is building his church. You go all the way back to the, you go back to the early disciples and when it looked like things were gonna go out and the, the flame was gonna be extinguished and, and they were all scattered and they were persecuted, it looked like this thing was gonna be over, but Jesus kept building his church throughout all of the early days of the church. If you go clear into the early church fathers where people were getting martyred for their faith, getting thrown to the lions, getting burned at the stake, it looked like there was no hope for the gospel to continue, but Jesus kept building his church. You go to the dark ages, and they're called the dark ages for a reason, because it looked like the flame of the gospel was going to be extinguished for a few centuries, but even in that, Jesus kept building his church. You go to the 1700s, the 1800s, when it looked like things were dry and getting off track, but yet you have these revivals over in Europe. You have revivals in the United States and you have Jesus continuing to build his church. And let me tell you guys, today Jesus is still building his church. You look all over the globe in Africa, in Asia, even here in the United States, Jesus continues to build his church. How many of you guys are thankful for that, that Jesus is doing that? I'm just, I just wanted to lay the groundwork there just for a second, okay? But here's the thing. I like to say it this way. Jesus builds his church with what I call raw materials. How many of you guys were a little bit raw when Jesus started working on you? Anybody? Anybody? Just like Jesus builds the church with raw materials. Here's the third way we could look at how Jesus said this sentence. And to do that, we have to understand where Jesus was. Jesus is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he's actually standing at the base of a huge cliff at the base of this huge rock and cut into the rock are little notches into the rocks everywhere. And they would take idols and they would place them in the notches of the rock and they would begin to worship there. And they would begin to worship. Now they would worship. I could have called this message because we've got Peter standing there saying who Jesus is. I could have called this message Peter Pan. Now I didn't, but you'll understand why I could have because what this is all about right here at this base where Jesus is now standing saying this sermon, they, this was the worldwide center and epicenter for the worship of the false god Pan at the time. They would perform all sorts of worship rituals and rites at the base of this cliff where these idols would be in the rock. They would all sorts of lewd sexual acts and stuff we're not even going to talk about would all happen right there. It was a very, very dark place. In fact, no good Jew, respectable Jew would have ever gone to that place because it would have made them unclean in some sort of way. 
But Jesus goes to this very deep, dark place. And there was also at this place nearby a cave, an opening. And water at different seasons would flow in and out. And they believed that different spirits would travel in and out of this cave during different seasons. And they began, they believed that it was actually a gate to the underworld. In fact, they called it the gate of Hades or the gate of hell. So get the picture. Jesus is standing literally and figuratively at the gate of hell in the deepest, darkest place where the deepest, darkest things of humanity happen. And he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. With people like this, the gospel can grow. I can plant the church in the deepest, darkest places and upon a rock like this, with people like this in the deepest, darkest places of humanity, the church can grow and thrive. Now, isn't that good news that grace can happen in a situation like that? You may be here tonight and you say, man, my heart is dark. My heart is a dark place. Listen, I got good news for you tonight that the grace of God can come into a place even like the deep, dark place of your heart. See, my heart is is cold right now. Oh, man, that's nothing for the gospel. That's nothing for grace of God. And here's what Jesus is saying. There is no opposition from hell that can overcome the opportunity of grace. Listen, somebody needs to get a hold of that tonight, right now in your life. There is no opposition from hell in your life right now against your family, against your marriage, against God's plan for your life that will ever be able to overcome the opportunity for grace in your life. Jesus never wavered when he saw opposition. He always stepped into it because he knew there was the most opportunity where there was the most opposition. And the same is true for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, there's always hope for grace, guys. No matter what you've done tonight, no matter where you've come from, no matter how hard your heart is, no matter how hard your marriage is, no matter what what situation you face, there's always hope for grace. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Yeah, if I'm going to preach hard, yeah, help me out, Jims. Yeah, keep keep preaching back to me, all right? 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. In other words, what you see is important. Stand firm in the faith. I love this scripture. Act like men, all right? Like, act like men, people. Like, not ladies, but men. Act like men. Be strong, in other words. How do we become strong? You become strong by what you feed on. Let me say that again. You become strong by what you feed on. If you feed on junk food, you're going to become junk, okay? It's not going to work out so well. If all you do is eat McDonald's, don't, okay? Just stop. Just watch Supersize Me or something like that, yeah. You'll figure out that doesn't work out so well. So if we want to become strong in grace, if we want to become strong in our purpose, if we want to become strong in God's plan for our life, what we need to feed on is the revelation of Jesus in our life. That's what we feed on. Feed on the revelation. Because here's the thing. There's always two perspectives going on in your relationships right now, in your marriage right now, in your workplace right now. There's two narratives. Which one are you going to see? Are you going to see despair? Are you going to see hope? Are you going to see uh, depression? Are you going to see joy? Which one are you going to see? Are you going to see opposition or are you going to see opportunity? There's always two narratives. 
There's always two narratives. The question is, which one are you going to respond to? Which one are you going to react to? So let me wrap this up. I want to wrap it up by kind of reversing this just a little bit. You see, Jesus asked Peter. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter's, they're saying, you know, some say this, some say you're this guy and that guy and this guy. And Jesus comes back and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And I kind of imagine, what if Peter would reverse that? And Peter asks of Jesus, Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you know, some say that you're a fisherman. Some say that you're kind of a loud mouth. Some say you're a disciple. Some say you're, you know, you're, you're just a coward. And I can almost hear Peter kind of with a crackly voice coming back to Jesus like, yeah, but Jesus, who do you say that I am? And Jesus would come back and he would say, you know what? You're redeemed. You're a child of the, of the king. You've been saved, delivered, and healed. I could hear Jesus coming back and telling Peter who he is. It's not important what some say. The question is, what does Jesus say? Who does Jesus say you are? And some of you, instead of just asking the world, who do you say that I am? You need to simply ask Jesus. Jesus, who do you say that I am? And I think you might be surprised at the result. I had people first service who came to me in tears afterwards and said, you know what? When you talked about that, something broke off my life just like that. I'd felt condemned all my life, and I knew that I, I, I need to rest in the identity of who Jesus is, but something broke in that moment, and, and all of a sudden I could see what, who I was because of Jesus and who he says that I am just, just like that, and God wants to do that for people tonight. But there's two perspectives. There's two perspectives. So let me wrap this up. If Paul was looking at open doors, quote-unquote, like we look at open doors, like a clear path from God, he never would have planted a church in Corinth because it was a dark place. And it, had, it was full of opposition. opposition. But, but Paul says, you know what? There's a lot of opportunity right here. Let me ask you tonight, what about your life? Are you looking for the least opposition or the most opportunity? You see, if you take the path of least resistance and try to use that as that's my open door from God, you will not, contrary to what you think, you will not have an open door of effective work for the kingdom. You'll just have a path of least resistance. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want to wrap up and I want us to receive communion. Now, as we receive communion, there's tables in front, there's tables in back. We have the juice here that represents the blood that was spilled on the cross. We have the, the bread that was, represents the body that was broken for us. And all of this, we're told to remember what Jesus has done for us. That he died on the cross and he took our sins. He took our place. He rose from the dead so that we could be his. So that grace could overcome. So that we could walk in that newness of life. And we're going to come and we're going to remember that tonight. And we're going to sing a song. And during the song, you're going to come and grab the elements. And then you're going to take them back to your seat. And at some point during the song, you'll just receive that there with your spouse. Or just if you're by yourself, just receive that between you and the Lord. But before we do that, 
I believe as we come to the table tonight, there are two kinds of people in this room, two different responses that need to happen. Let me walk you through this. Number one, if you've been looking for the least opposition in your life and trying to pray for open doors as a path of least resistance in your life, and you've been unwilling to step into the pain or the struggle or the opposition for the sake of the opportunity, you've been unwilling to step into the opposition for the opportunity that's in your marriage, for the opportunity that's in your friendship, for the opportunity that's in your calling or your purpose or your church or whatever it is, into your your neighbor reaching out to you, whatever it is. Here's how you need to respond, if I might suggest. You need to come to the table, and as you come to the table, you simply say this, God, not my will, not my will. Jesus, just hours before the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, and he prays this prayer, Luke twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And that's where most of us stop the prayer. And we assume that God is going to remove the cup and we move on as if he did. But Jesus continued and he said this, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so some of you tonight, if you've been, not, if you've been avoiding that opposition, thinking that I'm not gonna step into that because that's kind of not how God works. Listen, you're gonna step into not the opposition, you're gonna step into the opportunity. And by doing that, you're going to surrender. And you're simply going to say, God, not my will. I surrender. The other group of you, maybe you have been stepping into that struggle. You said, I did. I did step into the opposition because I saw the opportunity. And Sean, I've been fighting the struggle and I just frankly feel tired tonight. I'm tired of the opposition. I feel like I've been in the fight. And I've lost. I just don't know if I can keep going. Here's your response tonight. It's, It's not not my will. It's going to be this, not my strength. You're going to come down and you're just going to make that confession. God, not my strength. And you're going to just receive strength from God tonight. You see, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You're going to come down and you're going to pray, not my strength. You say, Sean, I prayed this before and I didn't, I prayed it a thousand times and okay, we're going to pray it again tonight. Why? Because we believe God's word. Because we trust he's going to do what he said he did. And we're going to come with open hearts and open arms. And we're just going to say, God, not my strength. And God is going to fill us with refreshing tonight as we walk this out by faith. The question is, what do you see? And so as we come to the table tonight, have those things on your heart. Remember tonight, but also have those things on your heart, whether you're a not my will tonight or a not my strength tonight come to the table and just you might even just say that as you come to the table you might just come up and grab those elements and whatever that is for you god not my will god not my strength and come back and receive so would you stand with me as we pray and then we'll come and we'll receive this lord we thank you so much for your grace that it goes even to the deepest and darkest places of humanity and since it goes there lord we believe it can go even into the deepest darkest places of our life And there's no opposition of hell that can overcome the opportunity of grace. 
And Lord, we make that confession. Tonight, I pray that those who need to surrender, Lord, would have the courage and the revelation to do so. Those who need to receive strength, Lord, let them be receivers tonight and not workers. Let them be receivers of your strength and not working for it or trying to earn your grace or your strength in some way by their own efforts. Lord, we want to be receivers tonight. We thank you so much that you are a gift to be received, not a payment to be earned. Lord, we receive that tonight and we remember your sacrifice and your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's come and receive. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.